right. Well, thank you, Paul. And thank you for all you do, man. And if those that don't know Paul, he is uh, majorly involved in leading our students and our student worship teams. And so we're thankful for the many ways uh, that, that's right, you can clap. Uh, for the many ways he fulfills his calling. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14 this morning. And uh, we are indeed going to be observing communion at the conclusion of our time in the word this morning. So we'll be looking at uh, a few verses in Mark, and then also turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to take a pretty close look at the Last Supper, and then how we should approach our practice of observing uh, and remembering that supper. And so uh, thank you to the many uh, great uh, scholars and commentators who have helped me in understanding a lot of the information I'm going to share. I am going to share a lot of information up front for those of you who aren't uh, the studious type, let me say that it will, by paying attention, uh, it will help you to understand more about the important part of what the Last Supper means. So let me read Mark 14, through 26, which is our text today, and then we'll get rolling. Verse 22 says, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The tradition is that Jesus was crucified on Friday. Because the writers uh, of the Gospels mention it, that it was the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. So that week, Passover was on 15 Nisan on a Friday. The three synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all seem to indicate that this Passover meal was happening on the evening of Thursday, which is actually for them the beginning of Friday, because their day was from sundown to sundown instead of sunrise to sunrise. In John's gospel, he kind of confuses it for us a little because some of his passages seem to indicate that Passover had not taken place yet when Jesus is arrested and tried. And with any point, there's, you know, some seeming debate. You'll find a lot of theories about these, you know, what appear to be inconsistencies. The simplest and most logical answer to me, and therefore the most likely scenario, is that John, when he references Passover, he's not referencing the exactness of the Passover meal as much as he's referring to the general events of Passover. For example, we might refer to Christmas, not necessarily as December 25th, but as the days or weeks surrounding Christmas, or some millennials refer to their birthday, and they mean the whole week or the whole month. <laughs> yeah, all right. The fact that, <laughs> that stung someone a little bit is what it felt like. The fact that they went into the city here is evidence that this was indeed the Passover meal, though. Verse 16 says the disciples of Mark chapter 14 set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared Passover. And then they would eat that night. Verse 17 and 18 says, when it was evening, he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at table and eating. So the Passover meal was originally eaten standing in readiness uh, to flee Egypt. But since that wasn't commanded in the law, the people of Israel observed the Passover meal sitting down. Rabbis actually instructed that it must be eaten sitting down because uh, standing was the position of a slave. And that was an inappropriate posture for someone who's celebrating their freedom from the slavery in Egypt. 
And it is absolutely clear that Jesus considered this meal that they're observing a Passover meal. In Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verse 15, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The Passover meal was celebrated in Israel. To remember how the Lord passed over the houses of Israel in Exodus chapter 12 and delivered them out of slavery from the Egyptians. At the time of their exodus, the people of Israel observed the Passover in their homes. But once Solomon constructed the temple, Jerusalem became the central location for Passover. So instead of a household observance, Passover became a pilgrimage festival. By the time of Jesus' ministry, Jewish people from everywhere made their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and the week of unleavened bread that followed. Crowds squeezed into Jerusalem. Many historians have speculated that between 200,000 to over 2 million Jewish people streamed into Jerusalem for the festival. This estimate does not include the large number of other visitors to Jerusalem during the festival. These are Jewish people who are ceremonially unclean and Gentiles. It is worth noting that since the temple was destroyed in AD 70, Jews have since went back to observing Passover in their homes. The lamb is what serves as the centerpiece for Passover. Israelite families would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and have to purchase their lamb by the 10th day of the first month. That's four days before Passover. The lamb would have to be unblemished. It would have to be younger than one year old. Starting about three o'clock in the afternoon on Passover and continuing until dusk, fathers or other family leaders would take their family's lamb to the temple. With the supervision of priests, the family representative would slaughter the lamb and catch the blood in a basin. The priest would then toss the blood at the base of the altar. Then the family representative would skin the lamb, remove the fat and kidneys that would be placed on the altar, and they would be burned. Then he would wrap the lamb in skin, place it over his shoulder, and carry it uh, to where the family was going to share the meal together. There the lamb would be roasted outside over an open fire until it was ready to eat. And so in Jerusalem on this evening, you would smell the aroma of uh, cooking a burning lamb. In addition to securing the lamb, families would work to remove all the leaven from the house. This was a task that was to be completed the night before the meal. The father or the head of the family would lead in the search and removal of all leaven. Early in the morning of the day, the leaven had to be taken away and burned. God also ordered them to, un, to eat unleavened bread for seven days after the Passover, which was referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Other details were involved in preparation for this meal. Items such as jars of water, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, a fruit and nut paste, and a raw vegetable dipped in tart dressing had to be gathered and prepared. Also, wine had to be secured because there weren't any Southern Baptists or Pentecostals around yet. <laughs> so in addition, the room had to be arranged with floor cushions so everyone could recline at table at the time of the Passover meal. And the timing was critical of the, in preparation of the Passover meal. The lamb and all the items had to be prepared by 6 o'clock p.m. That's when the family would recline at the table and the meal would begin. This Passover meal, which was taking place all across Jerusalem in homes and hotels, uh, was much more than a meal consumed by a family during a festival. It was an opportunity to remember the story of God's redemption. Each item played a significant role in helping God's people to remember what he had done for them. For instance, the Passover lamb reminded them of the faith of their ancestors, who painted their doorpost with the blood of the sacrificial lambs, thus sparing them from the visit of the death angel. The bitter herbs helped them to remember the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. The unleavened bread recalled their hasty departure from Egypt. 
The nut and fruit paste helped them to re recall their the clay their ancestors used to make bricks for Pharaoh in Egypt. And the cups of wine reminded them of God's promise in Exodus chapter six, verse six through eight. And I'll read that now. It says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you <clears throat> from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with the great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And so this Passover meal reminded them of God's promise and his fulfillment of that promise. And it caused them to anticipate the day when God would once again bring that freedom that would not be temporal, but that would last forever. And they would conclude this meal with the singing of the Hallel Psalm, Psalm 115 through 118. And that's why Mark says in verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The implication of the Passover meal was that if you were unclean, if you were unclean, you were sinful, and you participated in the Passover meal, the blood of the lamb made you good with God and able to have fellowship with the people of God. But if you were unclean and the blood of the lamb did not cover you, you did not participate in Passover, you were cut off from God and you were cut off from the people. Numbers 9 lays this out for us. So with all that in mind, I want you to think about what Jesus says here in verse 22 when he says, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. We have the Greek word for body, but there's not actually a... Aramaic word for body. Some have suggested that Jesus used the word flesh and this was then translated such in the Greek. He says, this is my body. And, and there's debate over whether or not when he says, this is my body, whether that's literal or that's figurative. And there's a lot of hashing out over that word is, but the interesting thing is there's actually no verb is in Aramaic. And so what Jesus would have actually said is this my body, this my blood. And so there is a, a, an idea, a belief in what is called transubstantiation. This is held amongst many Catholics, this idea that when we take communion, the bread is literally in that moment becoming Jesus' body, and the cup is literally in that moment, or wine in that moment becoming Jesus' blood. Now, is this really a big deal, whether or not we actually believe that that's what's happening or not? Well, what I would say to you is it does become a big deal when the act of communion becomes the work by which you become holy. And that is the teaching of the Catholic Church, that we have to keep the sacraments, and if we keep the sacraments, it makes us holy, and the reason communion is an important sacrament is because of what happens at communion. But what we need to understand is communion is not the work that makes us holy. Communion reminds us of the work that made us holy. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this is why we still remember this today. Because when we eat the bread, 
the bread, in the same way that the unleavened bread represented the fact that God had delivered the Israelites out of slavery and God given them freedom, Jesus gives us the eternal freedom. The bread represents the freedom we have because of Jesus' sacrifice. The bread represents the freedom we have because of Jesus' sacrifice. And, and we'll talk about this being observed in the early church and Paul's instructions on us observing it in just a few moments. But we need to understand that what they ate was unleavened bread at Passover so they could leave in a hurry. And this idea was you could eat good bread in slavery or you could eat the unleavened bread and be free. But it's not just about the bread. It was also about the cup. Mark chapter 14, verse 23 says, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now there's believed to be four cups of wine that were consumed at the typical Passover celebration. There's debate as to which, you know, what the symbolism of the cups were at Passover. Most believe though that there were at least four times the cup was filled and passed. So there's also then debate on which cup of wine is being uh, drank whenever Jesus is saying this. But here's what is clear. Jesus is saying this cup is now symbolic of my blood. And he's saying there's a new covenant because of my blood. Luke chapter 22 verse 20 says, And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In Exodus chapter 24, Moses sprinkled the blood of the sacrifices made as Israel confirmed a covenant to the people of God. Then Israel instituted daily sacrifices. And then Israel started celebrating festivals. Passover is one of those festivals. Another one is the Day of Atonement, a day when the high priest would offer a sacrifice for all the sins of the people of Israel who sought after God. These things are what Jesus has in mind here. Matthew says he, that he said, verse 28 of tw chapter 26, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now the disciples may not have understood what Jesus was saying at the time of the meal, but they remembered later when they write, wrote these things down, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. The days that have been prophesied about are here. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34, the prophet says this, and I read this a few weeks ago. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In the days when the prophet Jeremiah is broken over his people and how they have broken the covenant of God. He says there will be a day when there is a new covenant when a high priest has made this covenant and everyone will have access to God and he will be dwelling in them, he will be on their hearts, they can know him. And at this last supper, Jesus is demonstrating that those are who are in communion with him are recipients of this new covenant, recipients of his grace. He says, Luke says in chapter 22, verse 17, 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Which echoes the language of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 12 and 13. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The benefits of Jesus' death and victory are shared with many undeserving recipients of his grace. And when we drink of the cup, when we eat the bread, we remember the freedom that Christ has offered us because of his sacrifice. And when we drink of the cup, the cup reminds us of the righteousness we have because of Jesus' sacrifice. We have been made right with God because of the sacrifice of Christ. The cup represents a theological phrase that is uh, substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. Here's what the Moody Bible Institute defines as substitutionary atonement. According to the scriptures, sin must be paid for. When Jesus Christ died, he suffered as a substitute in the place and on behalf of fallen humanity. Christ's death made it possible for men and women to be declared righteous, right with God, based on their faith in him. Christ's death was not merely a statement against evil or an expression of love, but a payment that satisfied God's demand. Christ's death was necessary for several reasons. First, our sin alienates us from God. Those who are controlled by sin cannot please God. Jesus Christ's death made peace with God possible. Christ has come not just to serve as a godly example, but to die on our behalf, to bear the cost of our sin. Secondly, we need to understand that God is holy. God's character requires that sin be punished. He is just, and sin makes us the objects of God's wrath until the penalty of our sin is paid. By laying down his life, Jesus paid the price on our behalf, satisfying God's righteous, holy, just demand. This payment was made not to Satan, but to God. Third, the presence of sin renders us helpless. We cannot save ourselves. We do not have the will or the ability to offer anything acceptable to a holy God on our behalf. And so we not only suffer from the guilt and the penalty of Adam's original sin, but also from the effects of our own sinful nature and actions. And God, who is rich in mercy, sent Jesus Christ to die in our place so that he might be righteous in dealing with sin, while at the same time providing his own righteousness to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Christ's death was more than an attempt to reverse the human course started by Adam. It serves as a substitute payment for the trespasses of all mankind. That's why Christ died. Jesus says in verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now there are no recorded examples of Jesus drinking wine in the 40 days that he was on earth. 
uh, after his resurrection, but he did eat and drink with his disciples. And one would assume, since it was custom in that day, that he drank of the cup at those meals. There have been those who propose, no, he didn't, and ultimately this means when he got to heaven. But I think it was after the crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus said, Luke tells us a little more clearly in verse 16 of 22, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. But Jesus' sacrifice was the fulfillment of the old covenant. And it inaugurated a new and eternal covenant. The kingdom of God is here. And Jesus is the center of all of this. And this sacrifice is what we have in view as we worship and as we live our lives and as we think of other believers. And specifically for the purpose of today as we think about communion, but really with the implication, implications for the rest of our lives, we need to understand that Christian fellowship is centered around this. Christian fellowship is centered around Jesus' sacrifice. So we, we learn from the book of Acts that the early church met weekly. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. Now later in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it says that they broke bread in homes. So the, the breaking of bread in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and the breaking of bread in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, are not the same thing. And we need to understand that Acts chapter 20, verse 7, talks about an intentional gathering of believers weekly to break bread. In the Didash, that's a manual for church leaders written about AD 120, there's a statement made in it. It says, Christians come together each Lord's Day, that's the first day of the week, to break bread and give thanks. In the second century, historian Justin Martyr speaks of Christians meeting on Sunday and partaking of communion. Now, I'm not sure what this means for me and the fact that this was a part of what the church did every week. And I'm praying on that and studying that further. But here's what I do know that it means for me and you. We need to be sure that Christ is at the center of our activity. And I think that Christians today are often looking more for a pick-me-up and socialization when they come to church than they're really looking for fellowship. I don't know if Christy remembers this, but when we had just started our church, one of the people who was attending our church suggested that instead of taking communion, we just have a pizza party. And the, the, the part of where they were coming from was they, they wanted people to have genuine connection with each other. So they got a part of it, but they didn't get all of it. And so I read them 1 Corinthians 11, which we'll look at in just a moment, and they eventually left the church. J. Vernon McGee says this, I personally do not criticize church dinners in and of themselves. I think they can serve a wonderful purpose. But the type of church dinners we have today are often not quite what they should be. It is wonderful for people to meet and have fellowship around the person of Christ. If he is not the sinner, and we're just having a grand old time, though we call it fellowship, we have missed the point. The word fellowship is the word koinonia. It means to have things in common. And what the Christian church has in common is Christ and his sacrifice. You see, Christian fellowship is centered around Jesus' sacrifice. And so I want to spend the rest of our time looking at some problems that instantly arose in regards to this practice and what we need to do to ensure we avoid those problems. I'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. But before I do that, here's what I'll say. 
if Jesus' sacrifice is central, there is no room for disunity in the Christian community. If Jesus' sacrifice is central, there is no room for disunity in the Christian community. We'll unpack that. Verse 17 says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Paul is saying, church, you're getting together, but it's not for the better. It's not helping you. It's hurting you. Before I move on, let me just let that overarching thought soak in. A church can get together regularly and God consider it a bad thing. We need to ensure not that we approve one another, but that what we are doing is in line with God and his word. And here's why Paul is saying this specifically to the Corinthian church here. Look at verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Then he kind of gives a sidebar, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So Paul does say, hey, there has to be some factions. He's saying it's okay that there's a division between those who are rejecting and ignoring the ways of God and those who are saying, hey, we need to see what God says. But Paul is saying here, what is taking place is actually creating disunity in the body. Now, when Paul uses this word, or these words, divisions and factions, he's using language of that day that describes what would happen in the Roman assemblies. And he's saying the church shouldn't follow the patterns of the world. You see, they were political in nature. And these assemblies, these Roman assemblies, were actually a means to pursue worldly desires and worldly agendas. And divisions and factions in Roman society were based on these desires. And so you'd find a leader you like, or who emphasized something you like, Instead of really being unified for the good of Rome, that happened back then, not today in countries like ours. And the church of Corinth was in danger of just being just like their society. And so finding a personality, finding a person they like, and attaching themselves and being more divided as the people of God rather than really looking to what God has to say. And so it was creating division in the Corinthian church. Look at what verse 20 says. When you come together... It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So the churches in cities where there were synagogues would usually meet in the synagogue on the first day of the week, and then they would meet in homes throughout the week to study the Bible and participate in Christ-centered fellowship and pray about how God might be calling them to give themselves away together. But at that big gathering, they would get together and they would have a big meal that they used as the Lord's Supper, and they would call it, in this day, the agape feast or the love feast. Now, some of you have been trying to figure out what we should call you know, this, worship gathering, worship service. And let me just say, let's not call it the love feast. Because if you invite your friends who don't go to church to a love feast, they might be a little skeptical of you. And if they're eager to join you for a love feast, maybe you should be a little skeptical of them. <laughs> anyway, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you might be eating the bread and drinking of the cup and going through the motions, but that's not the Lord's Supper. 
Now this sounds foreign to us, right? Because when we think of the Lord's Supper, we don't think of this big feast. We think of a stale crumb and a little half shot of grape juice. But for them, it was a feast. And they were working hard to prepare the bread and they were drinking wine. But I want you to understand two things that are happening that are disturbing. The first here is that the elite, since they are footing the bill for most of what's taking place, they're going ahead and making sure they get their portion first. And it's kind of a who's who of gets to, who gets food first. And the poor, well, they got the leftovers, which still tastes better than our communion wafers, but probably not much better. And certainly there was a clear distinction between the haves and the have-nots when the church gathered. Now the second thing is that people were getting drunk off of the wine at this communion, at this feast. Yep, they were. And so they kind of viewed this gathering as more about just something social and something for them to enjoy. And Paul says to those who are thinking of themselves first, can't you just eat dinner at home? Why does everything have to be about you? Now, if you go back into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul references how there's a food shortage in this area at this time and how a lot of the poor people are affected by this food shortage. And now he says, in the midst of this famine, you elites are eating the best of this food in front of them while they're already starving. And these people are already struggling with feeling like they aren't valuable or they've done something wrong that's caused them to be in the position that they are in. And the way that you're doing church is actually creating more of a social divide. And so they're thinking, we go to church, we take the Lord's Supper, and Paul says, well, good for you, except not good for you. It's bad for you. And then he reminds them, this is what communion is, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is what the church is doing when they made eating bread and drinking the wine a part of their worship. They're proclaiming the sufficiency of Christ. This is what we are doing when we gather together and why we try to observe communion somewhat regularly. And it's not something that should only be practiced in motions and in flesh, but it's something that we should prioritize in our spirit. It should be the focal point of our worship. It is symbolic of the new covenant that God dwells in us. And when we come together and we do these things, but our heart is really focused on seeking our own interest and not on praising the sufficiency of Christ. We are in error. And look at what Paul says about the severity of this issue. Verse 27. Whoever therefore <clears throat> eats the bread of, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So if you do this in an unworthy in an unworthy way, that word unworthy means irreverent. It means without regard. If you do this without regard for what you're doing, without regard for what God has done, that without reverence for the fact that God made the bread and God made the drink and that you wouldn't exist without God, and more importantly, that the bread represents the whole body of Christ and the cup represents the whole blood of Christ, and without these, you'd be under the wrath of God. 
If you're doing that and not thinking about that, you bring judgment on yourself. You, you are the very reason that Christ died. And if you see communion as about your enjoyment and not as about enjoying Christ, and if you view church about others serving your preferences and not about serving Christ's preferences, you need to check yourself. And Paul says you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself, verse 28. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You need to examine you need to see if this is real, if this is authentic, if you're really doing this for Christ. Because the appropriate response to the freedom and righteousness offered by Christ is an examination of whether or not our hearts are on our worldly desires or on God's desires for this world. The appropriate response to realizing that Christ has been given for us is to say, am I giving my life for Christ? It's not that I would come and I would want God to give me everything I want. It's that I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And if you don't examine yourself and you participate in the Lord's Supper, you bring judgment on yourself. Verse 30, that is why, Paul says, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul's saying some people have died. We see examples of this in the New Testament. It doesn't mean that all sickness is because of sin, but some is. And here God is dealing with their hearts by allowing, maybe causing some of them to be sick and some of them are dying. This is the judgment of God and he's doing this to purify his church around Christ. Now that might bring some fear in you. I gotta do the right things. I don't want God to get me, but that's, the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here. Paul's saying, if you are examining yourself, there's no reason to fear. Verse 31, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is the new covenant. When we're letting God examine our hearts, God is strengthening us and shaping us and making us to be more like him. That perfect love is casting out all fear and we're responding with obedience. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. And you should read on in 1 Corinthians 11 to see those other things. This is why we wait and take communion together because it's about our, our communion around Christ what Paul says here is a slap into the face of our culture, which has overemphasized a personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus loves you intimately and personally, but that relationship is not individual. It is communal. And when we think of communion, when we think of the Lord's Supper, we think of the church. We think of the community we share around the central belief, and it creates a longing in us for unity. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has restored our relationship with our father and with our brothers and our sisters. Remember that the church can be gathering, following their vision, having their worship services, and be an heir. And this is why some people have decided, I'm just not gonna be a part of a church. Churches, you know, I was inspired at church. They have a cool building for my kids. The music was cool, but it's empty. It, it, maybe it's institutionalized and everything they do is so formal and there's real, real no hearing and obeying and listening to God. 
Maybe there's religiosity, there's religion, there's a lot of going through the motions. And I, I see these errors, but brother and sister, we are in error if we don't have communion with other believers. We like to throw the word community around a lot. The word community comes from the word communion. The word communion is derived from a Latin word that is derived from the Greek word that we see in our Bible for fellowship, koinonia, which refers to us having all things in common. And for the Christian church, it's that we are centered around the person of Christ. The word community symbolizes that we have something in common and we are sharing that together. And what we have in common is the body of Christ was given for us and the blood of Christ was poured out for us so that God could dwell in us. And it all revolves around Jesus. And so when we get together and who Christ is, is the center of our worship and the center of how we respond we are on the right track. And that needs to be the center this morning as we participate in the Lord's Supper. At this time, I'm gonna ask if our deacons and would come forward to prepare the elements of communion and if our worship team would come to join me as well. And as we prepare to receive communion, the deacons will pass uh, the elements. Make sure when you grab it, you're grabbing two cups. They're double stacked, the bread and the juice and hold on to those elements until we take communion together. And as we're preparing to take communion, may we also examine ourselves in this moment. When we ask God to show us ways that we're living for ourselves and we're not living in light of the body and the blood of Christ. As we take communion, may we think about Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 14, which says this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Dan, if you would please lead us as we prepare our hearts for communion. we are reminded of this time in which we partake of the cup and the bread as community. We are reminded that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, went to that cross and his body was broken and blood was shed. And we realize that that had to happen in order for us to enter into a relationship with you for all eternity. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And Jesus went to that cross and he paid for our sin. And as we partake now, we are reminded of that gift that you gave us. I ask now, Father, that you bless this time together. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.